start with a bang in honor of no time to die wrapping up the daniel craig era what is your favorite james bond film opening sequence uh, i'm katie rich and the braggy but true answer is the skyfall opening sequence <laughs> that matt patches and i witnessed them filming in istanbul uh i don't know how i'm supposed to say anything else that's true we saw daniel craig driving a motorcycle through a bazaar we sure did how bizarre do 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm Matt Patches. I did not get to witness this, but I really wish I had, which was the opening to For Your Eyes Only, where James Bond lifts Blofeld uh, up by the wheelchair using a helicopter, then drops him in a smokestack as he's begging for his life. <laughs> I'm back with Decatessin, Bond! <laughs> Thank you for reminding me that that is a line in the scene. A ridiculous line. Hey, I'm David the Seven, and because of my age era and it being a series of Nintendo levels I endlessly played, I'm going with Golden Eyes. Damn infiltration and demolition. Uh, and I am David Ehrlich, and I, I mean, I guess it's not technically the opening opening sequence, but the crane chase, the start of Casino Royale, uh, not the pre-credit stuff. It's just so, so fucking cool. Not a, not a correct answer. The one with all the, one with all the parkour, right? Yeah, but the, the pre-credit sequence in Casino Royale, yes, the one with all the parkour. The preset, there was like, that totally made the parkour fad worth it in and of itself. The pre-credit sequence in Casino Royale is so short that it doesn't have any action in it really. Other than like him shooting someone in the background, in the bathroom. Um, but fuck, the Daniel Craig era it's not just shooting on someone a high note bathroom they have this pretty intense fight and they Do crash they? into a sink the sink breaks yeah but once the you see breaks. the bathroom fight from uh, mission impossible fallout i feel like it wipes out all previous bathroom fights. no way no way i i'd love to devote entire half power to this conversation henry cavill pumping his arms will never top <laughs> daniel craig bashing people in black and white classic mm-hmm. lightning rounds just a quick little spin isn't it weird that we lived through a parkour trend that like that was the thing that happened in our lifetime? Yeah, David took all those parkour lessons and then the fad ended. We thought it was going to be an Olympic event. I mean, it still looks cool. Okay. <clears throat> Reboot District B13. I saw that movie in theaters, not really knowing what parkour was, and it kind of blew my mind. So, the French version or the... the, the uh, Fr- yeah, wait, is it... Was it not... The English was remake, it d- Brick Mansions. No, the French version. Uh-huh. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 368. It's Pandemic 81. It is the week of Wednesday, October 6th. That's the day that in 1889, Thomas Edison showed his first motion picture. Big day. Yeah, yeah big day. Also, uh, I believe I'm within one or two days here, but definitely this week in 2006, Friday Night Lights premiered. Wait, that's a weird... Directed by Thomas Edison. <laughs> yeah, directed by Thomas Edison. That's what links these two things. It's not the date. He was old, but it was kind of a Ridley Scott situation. He's like, I'm still going. I will direct the first. How season. about that football book about race how, that was a movie? How about I'll make it a show? Thomas Edison would have loved Tim Riggins. You know it. An innovator. Uh, I invented the light bulb. Cinema style on TV. He does it again. Thank you, Edison. Uh, well, I don't know if we have any reviews, and I don't know if Galaxy of Heroes is on its way. So I'm really nervous about what's about to happen okay. next. 
You should always be nervous, Katie. You should always be nervous at this part of the show. Uh, I have good news and bad news. The bad news is that we don't have any new reviews. That, the is, news, that is the worst news. The good news is that I took the initiative uh, to check the Fighting in the War Room Volume 1 page on iTunes, which is just uh, one oh. of our archive pages where I do not recommend that you leave reviews because in most cases we will not <laughs> check them. Um, and I found one review which uh is just enough for me it does not disqualify you from hearing star wars galaxy of heroes talk all i will say is that we just finished this uh, recent conquest season i chose the hard route i capped out somewhere in the fourth of the five boards dave how did you fare uh i did normal but also capped out around five but did a pretty good prize box have any of the star Star wars uh visions characters come to galaxy of heroes whatever this is (laughs) No, no, they haven't oh, yet. Thing. They, just, yeah, they, just, saw... they just finished rolling out the Bad Batch, and so I'm guessing Book of Boba Fett's going to be our next character drop. Oh, no sure no love for the anime I, characters. Come on. I, spend, I got so many shards of uh, Darth Maul, the, the new Darth Maul, not the, or just Maul, I suppose. It used to be Darth Maul. This is a new character. And also uh, oh, Commander Dawn Ahsoka Ta- Tano. Uh, and still needs so many more shards of both of them to get them. And my quest to get a Galactic Legend carries on. I don't know how anyone does it without spending a zillion dollars. It is going to take me so many more months. Uh, I'm going hard for the Emperor, Sith Eternal Lord. Anyway. Um, hard for the on, Emperor? I'm, yeah, going, yeah. I'm hard, hard for the Emperor. He's hard back, the baby. Emperor. The dead speak. <laughs> and uh, they, they're not the only thing that's rising. Hello. Shells 725 says on topic, next threat. And this is, again, in the Fighting in the War Room, Volume 1 review area <laughs> the next threat should be katie talking about titanic and foxcatcher now chels 725 it depends who you want to torture with this because katie talking about titanic yeah. is like fucking ambrosia from the gods just stick it in between my toes <laughs> because every other area of skin on my body has already been used katie talking about foxcatcher <laughs> i would sooner throw myself out a window and drink the water around a dupont i think factory. i should so talk I... about stinky sasquatch the video game that dave and i talked about a little while ago oh, yeah, more more sasquatch. Sasquatch. extremely in deep i can talk tell you all about the mushroom hunter level that i'm on right now so well, we made, our, uh, foxcatcher... people, found, people found your uh your uh royal family yeah true facts too interesting i would suggest if, if stinky sasquatch doesn't work maybe you can take us scene by scene through the new Diana musical that's on Netflix <laughs> and coming to Broadway. <laughs> I'm, that looks like a I might make that an upcoming segment because I do really want to watch it. Oh my gosh. Please. Um, well, if you want to just prevent any of what we just discussed, including more talk about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, and there are always more exciting updates to that game on the way, please go on Fighting in the War Room on iTunes, rather. Go on iTunes to Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review on our main episode page. It's the one with all the other reviews, except for that one I just read. Uh, and we will read it live on the show or else. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of threatening language we're looking for here. Oh, Dave! You pussy! It's time to talk about Venom too. Oh, that way—that's kind of like Schwarzenegger a little bit. Yeah. Kind of, why do you sound so much like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Eddie. Venom? Oh, I don't know, Eddie. <laughs> oh, now it's kind of—it's just... <laughs> getting like a weird Mexican accent. Somewhere. Oh no! What no? <laughs> Definitely a speedy. I've lost my Venom Gonzalez ability. Vibe going there.
Andy. <laughs> I mean, that is kind of how he sounds. It's definitely Tom Hardy doing something inappropriate. I don't want to know his source material for it, the Venom voice, but he's back, baby. Venom. Yeah, Venom. Let carnage? Them carnage. Uh, the sequel did, uh, you know, good business making $90 million over wow. a weekend somehow in theaters only. So, uh, somehow, what do you mean? People are going back to the movies. Yes, all I'm saying is that it's interesting that it's this movie. Um, it's... <laughs> yeah, did anyone have, did anyone get a vibe in advance, you know, not checking the tracking or anything like that, but just from your sort of antenna that this movie had that hungry of an audience? I, I honestly had no idea. I mean, I think the first Venom was a bit of a surprise because it looked kind of clunky. And then, hey, it turned out to be pretty wacky and funny and, and clashing its own tones and a bit of a surprise. And, but I still think the, like does Venom must have this secret Punisher esque fandom. He's like a super nineties edgelord character that a lot of different types of people want to show up for. Like some people Maybe. think he's Rob Liefeld esque bro fodder and other people think he's wacky comic book character. And maybe tons of people want to come out for this character. I, I showed up to the theater to see this with the, the with the people and i was like i'm very excited for this movie to the woman who was taking my ticket she's like i can't wait i haven't seen it yet but i saw the first venom five times Whoa. Wow. And this was just like i i got the vibe i got from this woman is like i'm just a regular movie goer who worked at the movie theater she saw it five times <laughs> and she was you like i can't wait more, to get off work and like, see venom too wait, i haven't, yeah, shorter, I haven't seen venom is that her revealing her inner venom is that how that works if you just seem normal but then suddenly you've seen venom five times does she have a symbiote living with her? That is, I guess, a is possibility. Is that the kind of thing that a symbiote would, would make Pretty wacky. Uh, it depends how much chocolate is at Venom, because they really yeah, just mostly they want to eat brains. And bite that's, heads. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that seems to they be the big thing. PG-13 eating brains. You would brains. actually Wait, love Venom the Venom movies. Venom chocolate? Yes, he Am loves chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Do what's I the ice cream Venom? that you like? You are a symbiote. The pumpkin so, pie plenty, which I have an update about, but we don't need to go into it. As somebody who... As somebody who's been alive is the entire time that the character Venom has been around and has been reading comic books like 80% of that time period in terms of how much Venom has appeared in comic sense. Uh, this second movie has made like Tom Hardy's Venom an entirely different entity. And it talks up a lot of him being the lethal protector, which is what he is in the comics, just sort of like a anti-hero um that you know eventually eddie brock decides to only kill bad guys etc uh this one is much more like two people sharing the same body that need each other to be powerful but have a very antagonistic relationship like a odd couple roommate relationship um or the way the movie trends by the end of venom to uh like a they're a romantic couple they're like together forever they're yeah basically it's like their their symbiosis is the most important where it's like venom because he started off as a villain in the comics uh or as david has seen him in spider-man 3 yeah i was gonna say like are you telling me that my beloved topher grace venom is no longer recognizable with this venom uh that's not necessarily true because of the mid credit sequence but at least in terms of the character of venom <laughs> yes um uh, it's they both really... came from space i think both venoms symbiotes in they did but this, this one's been here long enough where like uh he thought he needed to eat brains but it turns out there's just like a certain chemical that brains produce that could also be found in chocolate and like chicken brains 
but he doesn't want to eat the chickens because they become his friends. And yes, so they he have two pet chickens, Eddie and Venom, in this <laughs> yeah. movie. Katie, and- you would love the Venom movies because they are basically Little Shop of Horror, and sometimes they fight other people. Like <laughs> the Little Shop of Horror stuff is entertaining. Everything else I disliked about this movie, the Woody Harrelson of it, which should have been fun and should have been him well, doing d- a performance. L- I think. Let me like, ask you about the first comedy. Venom. Yeah. Did you like the first Venom? Did that like completely work for you? Because people seem gaga for it. But. It didn't completely work for me. And I think if we go back to like our review of it, from what I remember, it's I really like the Tom Hardy performance, but it was yeah. weird because the movie felt like it was made in 2003. It's like, here's an Eminem opening track. Here's a like pan across like San Francisco, but not the Bay. It was like all <laughs> these like weird decisions. It had where... no scope. Like the movie was weirdly suffocating and the action was mediocre and then you had this tom hardy performance that at the time i think many noted that it felt like jim carrey in the mask and totally working well i mean he's like swimming up current throughout all of venom yeah the Mm. the interesting thing about the first venom is tom hardy's performance is fighting everybody else in the movie and it's entertaining because of that because everybody else is in this dumb movie from 2003 that's a superhero movie and tom hardy's doing something else Venom Let There Be Carnage bifurcates that even more so that we're like sort of doing this journalist mystery of what's Cletus Cassidy. That's Woody Harrelson's character's backstory and how is he related to Shriek. Cletus Cassidy? Yeah, that's from the comics. They inherited Cletus Cassidy. <laughs> no, I, Dave, I, mean, I, I know that nobody working on a Hollywood film in the year 2021 has the creativity required to come up with Cletus Cassidy. <laughs> That much is clear, but I'm just still shocked. Well, David, shocked that you'll be disappointed to know that in the post credit scene of Venom, Woody Harrelson is there as Cletus Cassidy, but has like wacky Ronald McDonald hair, which they have cut and made him look normal. So points against Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage. for It could have been wacky versus wacky. Instead, they've saddled the Carnage character with this completely so weird, not a mystery backstory because they also show it to us at the very beginning. <laughs> It's so not it's a, a mystery, mystery, but they also need Eddie to like go solve the mystery by showing up to an orphanage Eddie. and finding their tree where they carve their names into it. It's like the worst detective work ever. It's so boring, but it does allow Venom to go to a club, a like gay festival uh, at a nightclub and take the microphone and declare his love for the gay LGBTQ community and like come out. So that was worth it. That's never yeah. happened. Yeah. Hard- roll roll this back a sec. <laughs> Venom comes out. Eddie, yeah. Eddie has to go uh, do some detective work, but it mostly feels like filler to make sure that Venom can go clubbing and everyone I mean, thinks are, any, are Eddie and Venom both gay or just Venom? Well, I think so by the end, gay, he has his coming out of Eddie party because he, oh, he's, he's at a rave and covered in glow stick, glow necklaces or whatever, and everybody thinks he's in a costume and he's having a great time. And so he gets up on stage yes. and he's like, everything Eddie told me about hiding myself is wrong. We right, should okay, treat so, aliens humanely. Yeah. And everybody who's all these rejects in the audience are like, woo, like, love your costume. I love you. And Venom's like, mic drop and drops the mic. He, d- he does. At the dro- end of the scene. Venom says mic drop and then drops the mic. <laughs> it, it's, he, it's, he, shout out to all the weirdos is what he says. It's who an, voices. It, it, Tom Hardy also. Tom Hardy. Venom. Oh, yes. 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 And the magical process of using uh, earpieces and pre-recorded lines that it seem all improvised. The weirdest part about Venom, Let There Be Carnage, is 
for all this kind of like rote drama that, that Dave is talking about with uh, the Cletus Cassidy, Woody Harrelson character and like the fault, the romance with uh, Shriek is, is played by Naomi Harris getting two weekends of big blockbusters in. Congratulations to her. Yeah, She's sidelined both, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but like all of that stuff is really boring and, and surprising that it's boring because I've seen a few reviews of Let There Be Carnage saying, oh, this movie seems really self-aware and embracing what was weird about the first one and maybe like too self-aware, really trying to manufacture the chaos of that first movie. And I would disagree that like we still have this half of it that is kind of clunky and old fashioned Sony superhero blockbuster um, that's going. And, and Tom Hardy is once again just like, deranged he's throwing himself against walls he's getting dragged around an apartment there's a scene where venom is cooking eggs with every other ingredient in the kitchen and is absolutely hysterical um there's so many good like weird edgelord lie like uses of the word shit and fuck in this movie um that come at the perfect moment there's one all- use of the word fuck because it's a pg-13 you, movie but it is you guys have said edgelord a lot in a way that makes me not ever want to see venom well, here's the thing, Katie, you're actually probably right, because I wouldn't recommend seeing this movie unless it's streaming somewhere in the future, mm. because I don't think it's good. And what's concerning about it is that it's done so well and its mid credit sequence is going to end up being the most memorable thing about it that, of course, we're going to get more. I think so. Of course, we're going to get more of these. So, uh, again, it's not that I'm necessarily uh, against this any more than the first Venom. It's just there isn't a market improvement. There might actually be like a little bit of the third act turns into a gigantic goop bite that's even more than the first movie. I like this goop goop bite. Slightly more intelligible goop bite, but I will agree that the goop doesn't go that far. It can't stretch. Well, yeah, but also how big is Carnage? It changes all the time. Like there's, there's no, simple- I don't think there's a single wide shot of either Venom or Courage in this movie where you can really tell like what they look like or who they well, are. Well, at least they're Venom. Venom at least far. Venom is in a rave, rave full of differently it's sized true. people, so I get to size him up. But like Carnage is the goop monster that like the first one kind of avoided, and in the first one, uh, Ruben, the way Ruben Fleischer, the director of that one, decided to shoot like symbiote on symbiote battle occasionally we'd see like Tom Hardy and Riz Ahmed fighting as their goop monsters fought. So it was like, we could tell that they're two goop monsters. This one is just a goop monster. will tackle a goop monster. That'll ooze some goop over him. And it all just goops out. This is not. That was like reason Gwyneth Paltrow to- is getting a, yeah. a lot of residuals here. <laughs> this is not the reason to see Venom 2. I mean, does she sell a candle that smells like Venom? Luckily, at least Michelle Williams is in here kind of doing a Gwyneth Paltrow impression. Is, is, uh, is, I love Michelle Williams. Is this is this worth her time? Is I mean, it worth her luckily, time? That's a tough question. I think she, she could have fantastic? maybe shot she could have maybe shot when she's in the movie over like four days. So yes, it was absolutely worth she her just time. looks like she's having a blast. The same way that Tom Hardy is like, I can do anything here. I can go, I can play at any level. So is Michelle Williams, who I think never gets to do that. Like she gets to be wrapped up in symbiote and and have like the funniest looking faces, just having a a blast pretending like she's Venom for a second. Or she is a lawyer in the movie, so she's coming to like bust Eddie out of prison. And I don't know, she's having a lot of fun, and she's paired with um, what's his name from from Veep, uh, uh Reed Scott, yeah. uh, playing her her fiance Dan, and the, he's just like a he's getting slapped around literally getting slapped around by symbiotes all over the place and trying his best to be a mere mortal fighting goop monsters and 
it's just really funny. I, I think even Tom Hardy out of Venom mode, uh, he's kind of lost in the movie. He at some point, like they become separated. The whole thing is, can Venom survive without Eddie? This movie is only ninety minutes. It flies. Um, but in the middle, Tom Hardy's like just playing the sad sack, and it's he's playing it really funny. He cannot get his life together. He's wearing the same T-shirt for like five consecutive in-world days of this movie. He is he's wearing a, the Axel Foley human Beverly dump. Hills Cop outfit. Yeah, it is so <laughs> just over and weird. over again. And we, it, nobody references it. It's just like, have we, uh, this movie's fucking weird. The first one's sweating weird. so much. This one's fucking weird. But I don't think it's trending in a we're going to be getting better weird direction. Mm. So I'm that's why I'm concerned. Yeah. There's absolutely going to be more Venom. Don't worry about that. This movie, like Patches said, is 90 minutes. There have been worse things I've seen on screen for 90 minutes. But, you know, I, I, think, think... I think the future holds some sort of spider world crossover. You know, there's this Jared Leto, Dr. Mobius living vampire movie that maybe will cross into venom at some point spider-man i mean we're not gonna spoiler tom holland spider-man in a second but the one thing i was gonna say is what this franchise desperately needs and like andy circus directed this movie and i think it makes sense on paper hey we have a fully like cg character let's get someone who knows how to interact with cg or under cg and like play it and i think you, you get more of Venom and Eddie just like face to face and playing in the apartment or walking around town and almost biting people's heads off. There's actually <laughs> a great scene where um, Venom takes over the uh, old Asian lady who runs the convenience store that Eddie always goes to. And she is phenomenal, too. Like she is, gets to play Venom in this. Everyone gets to play Venom. It's really funny. Um, and I guess Andy Serkis helped that. But I think what's missing is like a comedic director. I walked out of this movie. I'm like, maybe Ben Stiller should step up and make a Venom 3 because he likes making blockbusters for some reason and he cannot find a project that he can actually like. He needs to be funny and this would be a perfect match. Like, go full cable guy or something. I, I see this as being like Adam, Mc, like Adam McKay's next pivot once he, yeah. you know, if he ever runs out of traction trying to make... Like, get an actual comedy movies. person. It would be and much funnier like, that way. Don't Look Up is, is going to be some sort of Ugh. compromise between the movies he's been making recently and the funnier stuff he made back in the day. Uh, maybe if that doesn't work out, although with Netflix, who would ever know, he can pivot to uh, Venom Three. He can pivot to superhero movies. I mean that 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 seems like someone they might dish out to to get. But Venom Three would be a slam dunk, even with a <laughs> Ruben Fleischer or Andy Serkis back at the wheel. So, Qu- uh, quick quick spoiler gong here, so Dave can go full Marvel nut. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, the mid credit scene is Venom gets sucked into the Marvel Cinematic Universe at the end of Spider-Man Far From Home. How can you tell? Yep. Because well, he's a in a hotel room and there's a flash of yellowish it Might be light. Doctor Strange casting a spell? I don't know. I would assume think? so. Uh, they left it vague enough in the dialogue that it could be anything. But uh, he ends up uh, watching a television with... J.K. Simmons uh, is there. J.K. Simmons is J. Joe Jameson outing Peter Parker as Spider-Man, and then it cuts to a maskless Tom Holland Spider-Man standing uh, in outside. And Venom licks him. And Venom licks the television screen and says, that guy. <laughs> so sure. this is not Let's just go. a small M Marvel movie. This is a Marvel movie. All big, Ultimately. all Marvel movies are now big M Marvel movies, thanks to Sony and Disney's deal here. I guess at some point, Tom Holland def- like drops back into the Sony-verse. Like, this is going to be the last Marvel no, movie. With I think Spider-Man. Tom Hardy is going to is going to be in another 
big M Marvel movie this year, I think is what that means. It's just weird to me that they let the Venom, let there be carnage, seed seed it this way. Fantastic. The Spider-Man uh, No Way Home Twitter account, uh, the first tweet this morning was seen any good movies lately. I didn't see so, that. Dun, dun, dun. Good, good job, Sony. Uh, you Whatever deal that you had to make to let Marvel have its third Spider-Man movie, you got much more than I thought you did because this is cuckoo bananas give us mobius <laughs> well yeah i guess he's not in the the no way home because he, he comes him. out in january but uh we'll see venom let there be carnage it's in theaters only and people it are is. seeing it whoa yeah, people Lots actually, of people people, people paid money for it what are you talking about now katie okay, so is that how we want to leave this in the show should that just be i, don't we don't, know. I know we don't do transitions but that, that one felt uh pretty seamless go oh, sure we could just do that Venom yeah. could just pop up into different uh <laughs> answer venom katie what are we would talking about american crime story impeachment be better with venom on it yes or no I feel like Clinton has a bit of venom. Well, I, I don't. I mean, I honestly, I'm thinking like, would would Venom record his friend's secret phone calls and then hand it over to the federal uh, prosecutors? Because that's what Linda I mean, Tripp he basically did. does. He has he has like a picture perfect memory. That's exactly yeah. He can what uh, he can scan the walls and draw. Okay, them. so what you're saying is Venom and Linda Tripp would get along great. Oh yeah, exactly. I bet Venom loves Christmas. That's like Venom Four <laughs> right there. So, question: Because I've been watching American Crime Story impeachment, I have been doing the still watching podcast, Vanity Fair about it. So, I've been watching it uh, in some depth. Are, are any of the rest of you watching this? I have seen two episodes. Oh, right. And then you were like, "Nah," right? Yeah, I'm like, why am I reliving this? This seems really <sighs> dry and really ugly and I'm not, I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't captured by it like the OJ season. I never watched the Versace season. Is that right? Was that the Versace, second season? Yeah, of American the second Crime one. Story? Yep. Um I was fascinated by their their plans to do uh Katrina, I think was the original fascinated plan. Fascinated or horrified? I don't know. I thought it at least would have been more complicated hmm. or like the crime of it all would have been really interesting to consider. This is just I don't know. This is more costume drama than I would have ever expected mm. from. And then again, I mean, for, this is not a Ryan Murphy joint. No, right? it like, is. He's Ryan an executive Murphy's crime story it. stuff. He's a, it, they, he didn't write the. No, the, like, he, didn't, he didn't write. He directed an episode of American Crime Story, which is actually. Um, oh, God. I'm, I, so I've been recording these episodes a week ahead. I think it's the one that's airing next week, um, which is uh, kind of a big pivotal moment in which Monica Lewinsky is basically set up by Linda Tripp to and then is like kind of whisked away by Ken, the Ken Starr team and the FBI agents to be questioned for many hours in a mall. Um, and he directed that episode, which is pretty good. Um, and the thing is, I want to tell you to catch up on the show because I think it is much better than the critics are giving it credit for. But it's so hard to find. So there's FX. There's FX on Hulu. Right, and then there's regular Hulu. Hulu. This is not on Hulu. You can watch it on FX now, an app that probably literally nobody has especially because they assume they can watch all the fx stuff on hulu uh and it's airing and then that's only after it airs like you can't watch it at the same time that you could watch it on tuesday night you would like catch it the next day the way that you would for something on abc or something like that so it's this you know it's this 
franchise that like really oh. put FX on the map with American Crime Story with OJ, which was in 2016, which is a true lifetime ago. Wow. And so they're stuck with this terrible deal that they made to uh, not be able to have any of it on Hulu. So catching up with this is really hard. Because the deal they made is with with Netflix, right? This yes, show it will, will eventually, eventually come yeah, to it'll eventually be on Netflix. Exactly. Wow. Um, no, wild. it's really a relic of another time, but it's a really good show. Like, I think the reason to relive it is because you remember some of this. You might not remember all of us. None of us were adults when this happened. But I think you remember having some sense of who these people were and some sense of how Monica Lewinsky was and how she deserved to be treated, which I think we all have been able to kind of look back at it. Like, this isn't the first opportunity opportunity for us to culture will be like whoa we really gave monica Lewinsky a raw deal but i think seeing her played by beanie feldstein seeing like how young she was seeing this like friendship she had with linda tripp that was really genuine and linda tripp as a character is the most fascinating thing about the show entirely like she's this woman who is like one of the most famous traitors in american history and it's really drilling down on who she is like who she was when she worked for the George H.W. Bush administration why she left the clinton administration like her sense of self-importance like she was like someone who would walk into a radio shack to buy the tape that she's going to record Monica Lewinsky with and wore a trench coat and sunglasses because you kind of always think she's in all the president's men. And so much of this stuff is who she really was, but she's been not really examined. Is she dead? Yeah, she died last yeah, year, dead. like in the early of days cancer. of COVID, not mm-hmm. because of COVID. Um, but, but do you think she is, or is this making you reconsider her? No, like, I think she still did a really terrible thing. Yeah, she's pretty, a, she's a pretty but, bad but person. But I think that's what's interesting about the show is it's not to be like, well, Linda Tripp. It's not the way that it treated Marsha Clark, where I think we really felt te- like felt sad for Marshall Clark right. and kind of like saw her as a heroine. Linda Tripp is not a heroine, but I think you understand why she did what she did. Not that you would do it, but it's like it makes sense as a character. She kind of comes together as a whole. I would do it. Yeah, you would do it. You would, uh, you would sell out your you're you're recording this call and publishing it for the world to hear. Oh, um, my God. Um, I mean, the, the upside just seems too good. I get to what be made fun of for 30 years and then die. <laughs> how can I say no? Um, yeah, I mean, so if- yeah, I think my big my big fear of this show watching the first two episodes was that I'm like, I don't I don't know if I want to in like think about Linda Tripp or like valorize her in the end or something like I was worried about the trend of the show being like, we're going to get them. The, they, the first episode makes Bill Clinton see this like dark specter. They yeah, won't even show I his mean, face. He just He's just like the, the dark Lord or minute. something. Yeah, um, really, and not to say really that is silly. not to defend Bill Clinton in any way. Um, it is just a weird way to dramatize that. I think what's especially interesting about the second episode is, is Beanie Feldstein playing Monica. What I didn't know was that she was really like eager and yeah. obsessed with Clinton. Yeah. Like before she showed up, she was obsessed with Clinton. And I do find it fascinating. And I should go back and visit the show, maybe, because I'd be curious how to see how just like it continues to play out, because that portrayal of her as someone who is like super fangirl for Clinton before she even shows up to Washington. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is fascinating because the whole conversation after with real Monica in the pages of Vanity Fair and elsewhere yeah. has been like there's been a power dynamic issue, like him being the president creates a power dynamic issue that is really you know in the orbit of me too and i find that conversation to be really complicated and yeah. really needing nuance and i didn't know if the show could go there but i was at least encouraged by that not so much the linda trip stuff yeah and she would say that too i think like that was something that she wrote when like, she first started talking about it she was like this was a consensual relationship we'll always be firm on that and then yeah. after me too really got started she was saying you know what like there were power dynamics here that even i hadn't considered and she lord knows she had plenty of time to consider all of that stuff 
So I think that part of it's really interesting too. It doesn't linger that much on the relationship between them. It's much more about Monica and Linda and how this friendship kind of fell apart. Um, and I think it's just, it, it encourages you to like see what was wrong with the Clinton's behavior. Uh, like less Hillary, she becomes a more later on, but like to kind of get why people like Linda Tripp were so mad about him. It, like it, it tries to scramble your automatic political allegiances in a way that I think is really interesting. Worth your time, and it's impossible to watch. It bums me out. At some point, it'll be on Netflix. My big question is: at the beginning of this, you said that. At the beginning of this, you said that we were we were not that old when it happened, but it wasn't David like thirty. How old is David? I thought he's really old. I'm not even the oldest person on this podcast. That'd be me. Thirty-year-old Gen X David. Burn. <laughs> I think Dave's Dave's older than I am too. Good burn. Actually, a Gen X David coming in to talk about uh, the Sopranos adds up. <laughs> well, I uh, if we're going to start segment three now, yeah, I is, am one the of, of the three. elder millennials that I guess the recent <laughs> New York Times article was talking about, and that I one of the young people uh, who just came to the Sopranos now in the shadow of. Uh, the great decline of America since the time that uh, Sopranos first aired. Um, and uh, as listeners of the show know, I recently, because we talked about it in a recent episode, I watched all of the Sopranos beginning sometime in August and finishing eight hours before the, the, I had the, to see the movie. The question we asked you is what should we know before we see the many saints of Newark? And the answer you gave us was a review of the many saints of Newark. If I recall correctly. <laughs> oh, is that true? Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, well, we're we're re-reviewing it now. Yeah. The power of hindsight, an additional like two weeks of hindsight. Uh, and now that I am not the only one here who has seen it. But uh, yes, the Sopranos movie, uh, the, the movie, the prequel to a show that every young person in America is rapidly watching right now uh, as if it were some kind of game of squids, is now in theaters and on HBO Max. In theaters uh, where no one seems to be seeing it and on HBO <laughs> Max where who the fuck knows. It's called The Many States of Newark. Um, it's directed by Alan Taylor, and it was written or co-written by David Chase, the series creator of The Sopranos. And, uh, and Venom begin? is in it. Oh, it's a no, weird one, you guys. It is a weird Venom, one. Venom, you know what? Honestly, Venom could be in this movie, and it would only <laughs> would be like 3% weirder yeah. than it already is. It's a really strange uh, middle ground between... So weird. Telling a fully fleshed story about Dickie Moltisanti, who's played, I think, brilliantly by Alessandro Nivola. I love him in this performance. Movie. I mean, I thought he was phenomenal. Could have been a um, whole show usually, of this guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Loved very it. well could have. Yeah, well, there is. There's uh, a whole pilot, a whole movie about and then there's guy. a break, and then we <laughs> yeah. catch up with Tony Soprano. It's, it's a um, movie's one and done. Yeah, we'll get there. But um, yeah, he's playing Christopher Moltisanti's father, Dickie Moltisanti. Moltisanti, as we have previously <laughs> revealed to the gasps of a nation, translates into many saints. Uh, we broke that exclusive <laughs> on the show. Um, and uh, he, the movie partially tells his story and his sort of rivalry with um, Leslie Odom Jr.'s character, uh, who is trying to provide for and like get a leg up sort of for himself and for his own people in Newark. Um, and there's a bit of racial strife that is set against the backdrop of the 1968, I believe it was, Newark riots. 
Um, and Dickie's problems with his own father, who's played by Ray Liotta, are also happening around that, and they collide. And, and the, the Ray Liotta in two roles. Well, you know, it's was, gr- you know, we we got a letter from. Uh, this doesn't really happen anymore. I mean, like Disney, when they send like screening invites, will say, "Please preserve the secrets of this movie for a global audience." They're not specific. Um, the Many Saints of Newark, in keeping with the tradition of television showrunners who would often send a very particular uh spoiler points, right matthew weiner-esque us, right asked us not to reveal that ray liotta plays two roles in this movie oh. can we talk about um, the confusion that do you feel that as a spoiler but but just to fit no but just to finish this i mean it was a bizarre surprise that someone had told me about before i saw the movie and i'd forgotten about him and was surprised about it all over um but just to to finish just rounding out what this movie is there's that whole thread, the lion's share of which, as Dave alluded to, happens in the first 30 minutes of the movie, um, which takes place in one point in time. And then the movie cuts forward five years, which is all the rage of movies these days. Uh, it's something that No Time to Die <laughs> does. Of course, Avengers uh, Endgame really broke new ground there. Um, but uh, then you jump forward five years to when Tony is a teenager and he you don't really see the movie through his eyes, but kind of it's there's a lot of suddenly sopranos like cosplaying and fan service you see all these famous actors uh playing the sopranos characters in their younger years they get a lot of easy laughs out of that stuff michael imperioli is wonderful i thought as um not imperioli sorry uh michael gandolfini is wonderful as young tony soprano um not just imitating his late father james but uh really capturing sort of the soul of that character um, in a way that, again, I would watch an entire series about this character. But that second part of the movie is unevenly split between that sort of fan service I alluded to and the ongoing Dickie Moltisanti story uh, and what's happening with his ex-stepmother, who is now his wife and girlfriend, whatever, um, and is also sleeping with someone else. And uh, there's a whole thing. But it is it is a bizarre soup of different parts that I was able to rationalize um, as I did at length in my review and enjoy for what it is, especially being so having the show so fresh in my mind. But it, it's hard to deny that this is a strange uh, plate of gabagool. Am I wrong? <laughs> I, I would agree. I mean, especially in the latter half, as you're describing, there's this kind of maybe I had venom on the brain, oh but I'm just like, is this like the multiverse? Why is Tony in his guidance counselor's office having therapy <laughs> with a woman who looks like the therapist he'll have in the future or like why does his mom played by Vera Farmiga Livia Soprano who we see in the first season actually remind me of uh Edie Falco in the first uh, in in so the Soprano what show did you, like, what was your why are they playing these characters in like echoes of the of the future it doesn't make any sense or even Christopher gets bored, right? The, oh yeah, he like, meets Tony. Oh, it's it, it's like Harry Potter shit. It's like he, ooh, he may, he seems to know something about you, Tony. <laughs> well, and also the movie opens with the voice of Christopher being like that. Yeah, I'm speaking to you from my literal gravestone. Here's my uncle who murdered yeah, me. So, so well, well, well. Oh, I mean, hey. I, listen, I, I am the last person to say it's the first uh, scene of the movie. Like, Oh, I oh no, I I know, I know, and I am I am the last person to to you know, chide people over spoilers for a show that ended what thirteen years ago, fourteen years ago. But um, I, as someone who finished The Sopranos the night before I saw the movie, 
in the opening minutes of the movie, which was like, thank God, <laughs> the opening seconds of the I... movie, because they really, for, for reasons that I, I think are not fully explained, kind of inexplicable, um, did not need to be there in order to like better finesse the relationship between the movie and the show. Um, they it opens with this voiceover where Christopher Moltisanti is like, "Here's what's happened to me at the end of the movie, or the end of the series, rather." <laughs> and here's how I mean, they echo a line as they do at the very end of the movie that Christopher says in the show about Tony. But does that make this a better film? I would argue not so much. There's very much like a Spoon River anthology vibe mm. uh, to the way that the characters are just at the beginning. It's more silly than anything it's like else. The end of Sopranos our town. has a really yeah. I mean, yeah. Sopranos is a is a fun tongue-in-cheek sense of humor that I think often goes not unrecognized but it's overshadowed by everything else but it's always going to be at the fore of what David Chase does I'm not sure if it comes out so well in the framing device here Dave did you watch Sopranos are you a Sopranos yeah I did watch Sopranos uh not the first few seasons but the last two seasons while they're airing Oh, 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 bother airing. I thought you were just like, I just watched the last. Two I just watched seasons, the last. Right? I was just really into <laughs> the, 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 con- the contemplative parts of it. <laughs> you come no, from Buscemi mean, only. I mean, the, this, the Sopranos parts of this played uh, really well for me, I think, <clears throat> because if you're looking for who killed Dickie Maltesanti, because, you know, there's a season four, you know, emotional plot with Christopher about whether or not Tony lied about that or knew about that, the back half of this movie plays, I think, much better than if you just are suddenly coming into it, Sopranos, unaware. If you're not, then, like, if you're super aware of the Sopranos, I think the first part almost feels like Godfather 2-ish, where we're just, like, we're really feeling that echo that Livia is sort of like a Carmela and trying to judge the difference between... Uh, Johnny Soprano and Dickie Moltisante and Junior Soprano and how eventually that power structure is going to manifest with Tony down the line but Tony's like a middle schooler and doesn't even know it. I think it's really interesting in showing people that hadn't been uh, exposed the Sopranos a group of characters that we also didn't see a bunch in the Sopranos like the Dickie Moltisante I think we just saw him in a picture um and then sort of just like taking that and telling their story. But it does ultimately need to be a Sopranos prequel. So the framing device and the back half plays better the more you remember about the Sopranos, both with like echoed lines and characters showing up. And just because they don't want you to miss it, as David pointed out, like Silvio starts looking like Silvio and stuff like that. So Polly Walnuts keeps his hands in front of him. All these things. This is all stuff that means nothing to me. <laughs> Like yeah, how did this movie play? I to you, didn't. I so didn't watch The Sopranos that I didn't know that Christopher died. I didn't know that Christopher did die. Like when that line came up, I was just like, "Wait, does that something happen on the show? Or are they revealing this all in the opening of this movie?" Um, but I, I mean, so I watched. I did not manage to finish the entire movie, so I missed a lot of the part you guys are talking about in the back half where it gets kind of weird. Um, and but I thought that Alessandro Nivola was great as Dickie Maltesanti, and like. I kept feeling like I was just missing something extra. Like I know that Corey Stoll is playing someone who is a big character on the show. And I was just like, Oh, Corey Stoll's here doing <laughs> this. Uh, and it was just constant moments like that. Yeah. Like the, it's doing an imitation. Katie, I don't sure. think you're missing. You're, you're not really missing that much. I think in a way you have a more lucid take <laughs> on why this movie's vibe is so strange because the, the fact of the matter is that Corey Stoll is playing uncle junior and he does 
virtually nothing but shtick for the few scenes that he's on screen for most of the movie. I mean, he falls over. Um, he sort of, they're just, you, you know, teasing yeah, ahead to of what this character bad, becomes. Bad. Great stuff. Uh, right. And then, and then in the waning seconds of the movie, they reveal a huge part of lore, a huge part of Sopranos family backstory, which can, I guess, if you were to, you know, overlay it against the show would it's so color some of your, uh, right. It is. I mean, it comes out of nowhere. Um, it, it might color some of your feelings about the characters in the show going forward and give you some more context that, you know, is ret context. Um, Ooh, context. Is that a thing that we say? That's good. I mean, I guess retcon is short for ret- recontextualized. Recontinuity, ret context. I don't know. Context felt like a better, the continuity is less important to me than the context that it casts over the show. So I went with that, but um, yeah, I mean, but it's, it all, that comes out of nowhere and it, that it, it's sort of indicative of that weird split between sort of the jokiness, the mugging for the camera, um, John McGarrow doing Silvio and just making the frowny face and revealing, you know, that Silvio's always had this hairpiece. I have a, a medical condition. I have a letter from my doctor that suggests that I, I am uh, physically incapable of seeing hair pieces and wigs um, <laughs> and old age makeup. Like people watching Midnight Mass are like, whoa, why is this old age makeup so bad in the first episode? I'm like, what are you yeah, talking about? Really? <laughs> I, I have that yeah, I, What? Uh, so I, I would never, you know, uh, I would never, <laughs> I mean, it's owed to a more general stupidity maybe, but I would never have thought that uh, or assumed that Silvio Dante uh, in The Spread of Show is wearing airpiece. I was just like, wow, what a lustrous head of hair. <laughs> but um, I guess it all makes sense. Spoiler alert. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the movie has that weird vibe, but at the same time, the moreness of it all, the need for more in sort of a meta textual way is so true to the spirit of the Sopranos and Tony Soprano and what ultimately gets him, you know, maybe killed. It's debatable. Um, and everything else that like, I, I sympathize with the desire to make this movie. Um, and it does the movie does not always work, but I I can't be mad that it exists. Mm. Do you think the movie out, is ultimately about something that is beyond Sopranos? Did you feel like emotionally invested? I mean, or was the, there... the cyclicality of it is almost too obvious to really be a sticking point. I mean, it's something that's also baked into the Sopranos as a television show when you look at the relationship between Tony and AJ. So you know, to go back a generation, does that really do anything for me in these characters? No, I mean, it, it It further sort of fills in and shades in the, the lines where you think about like how Tony revered Dickie Moltisanti um, and then you see, you know, the, who Dickie Moltisanti actually was and how absent Johnny Boy Sprano was from his life, Tony's father. I mean, these, and you, you see, I mean, what I really liked, and again, about- this only just like resonates with the show, but so much of the movie, so much of the, the scenes that don't really feel like they add to this greater overall, ar- overall arc, but maybe have some dramatic integrity into themselves are about characters pushing themselves right up to the line of making change and breaking out of their mm. patterns of behavior and then falling back. I mean, I think of Livia Soprano talking about um, taking the kids into the city to see a show, trying to be a more present and caring mother. And then there's one little bit of resistance and she falls right back to her old ways. And this is something you see with Dickie Moltisanti in, in terms of the criminal underworld. You see with so many Tony time and time and time and time again in the show of trying to listen to the better angels of their nature and getting right up to the line in this sort of like asymptotic way where you're just like oh, always closer to getting there but never able to and then 
falling back down to where they were with a thud and usually some dead bodies. And so um, that is something that the movie does. But again, I mean, all of that is in the show. And so I just like the movie for bringing. Right. It's like, the thing. It, can't, it almost there. can't be separated. What, what, I mean, I. I oh, you know, no, I'm sorry. My very last thing, my very yeah. last thing. I talked too much. I know. No. My very last thing is just that I really like Dickie Moltisanti because as sociopathic as he is revealed to be um, and for all the terrible things in this movie, you can actually feel him. You can, you can, you trust that he sees in his mind's eye the ability to be a better man. Whereas Tony was always sort of faking it. I, I feel like we like see him before like, a transformation. I mean, I think we see him as you more do. human. You do. But even after that transformation, you believe, at least I did, that he believes he, he can be a good man. And he can't. But Tony I wish there never was more actually of, believed that. Tony always thought he was a piece of shit. I wish there was more of the the moment that he kind of like cuts off Tony and says, like, I'm going to try and save him by completely shutting him out. And though that that choice plays over like kind of condensed, not montage, but just like pretty crammed into the end of this movie. Again, I feel like there's so much more of this. I would have loved to see it expanded, uh, I think, as a, as a miniseries or something. It certainly doesn't. You know what's funny about this? Does this movie seem cinematic to, to you? Because like the the no, it feels the like great, shot it feels on like great television, shot on film looks amazing. Like going back and watching some early episodes from The Sopranos looks like a movie, and this looks like television. It's very strange well, uh, because of what digital uh, photography yeah. does to my brain. But yeah, I mean, it's I, I could be reading into this too much, and may, there's a recency bias at work. But I feel like the the sort of blue palette that they're shooting it with here evokes the uniquely tinted palette that they brought to the series finale and also the Joker. Uh, <laughs> the series finale of The Sopranos looks different from any other episode in the show. And the movie, I felt like, was playing with the same colors, but um, in the same sort of funereal tone. Um, but I don't know if that was deliberate or if I was just trying to look for places of connection. Yeah. I, I was going to say mm-hmm. one one interesting thing here that that helps the movie stand alone. I think is the Leslie Odom Jr. Harold character. We haven't really talked about him too much, but I, I wanted more of that too. Like, there's a lot of interesting things that feel kind of underdeveloped, maybe because there's too much Sopranos fan service in this movie. To I don't know, hand this movie over to someone. Else. Well, I had a question. I, I had good. a question about like the Sopranos dealing with race in general. Like, is is, is Sopranos having like major black characters like totally different from what the show did i don't i don't remember anyone talking about anyone other than italian white guys on the sopranos there i i would venture to say that there are i mean this isn't true but it feels true that there are more black people and more time devoted to black people more lines spoken by black people in the first 10 minutes of this movie than there are (laughs) in the entire duration of the sopranos i mean there are black characters throughout the sopranos but for the most part um they are not portrayed in a flattering light. They are certainly not given the agency needed to be seen in any sort of heroic, uh, in a heroic way. Um, and they're usually people that Tony and his gang call upon to you know, do hits and, and end up going awry. Yeah, it felt like the odd thing out of this movie. Not that I didn't like it, but it's like when The Sopranos, when it had time to go through the politics and the relationship issues and the existentialism over several episodes, it would be able to like bounce between like violence and hilarious scenes. And this one, I think 
does a big splash of context, and then basically does a Star Wars prequel. Which isn't to say that it's bad. It's that the ending's inevitable, and then things happen alongside of it, which is fine. <laughs> like the, it, it works for this type of storytelling. But I think Patches, you're right that it could have been something bigger. But I also think it still could be something bigger because this works really well as a just addendum to a series that exists. But if David's, you know, more thesis also applies to the creatives, like go back to these characters. I'd be interested in seeing more Harold McBriar or whatever he got up to, his lineage got up yeah. to in the 90s. I wish this movie also had a little more room to be to be weird. Uh, I don't know who on this podcast saw not fade away dave david chase's oh right single movie i forgot about it entirely maybe, maybe some of us saw it at new york film festival um 60s childhood movie make up a band and follow them uh just reviled like got really terrible reviews i i kind of dug it it is a weird idiosyncratic movie that just has a different pace it has a pace that reminds me of those early sopranos episodes that are just almost like Twin Peaks or something when it just gets a little surreal and, and off kilter. James Gattafini's in Not Fade Away as well, uh, playing a dad, and he, he's fantastic in a different mode than Tony Soprano. But I, I don't know. I kind of miss David Chase's stamp a bit more, which seems weird because it sounds like he's been working on this movie for years and years. And then Alan Taylor comes in and is like, uh, we're just going to make a make the movie, shoot the shit. I don't know. It just feel, I think it's very Alan straightforward. Taylor. And Kramer Morgenthau. Like, if I'm going to talk about, like, cool-tinted Alan Taylor movies that stay around, like, mid-height or in telephoto close-up, that's Kramer Morgenthau to me. So that's, like, Game of Thrones, Thor the Dark World. The DP. Yeah, when these two, when sorry, when these two team up, their things look like this. They should shit. Uh, And, yeah, maybe that made it more television-esque, but I, I wanted something more cinematic here, and I was surprised that David Chase, who has made a really strong movie that I guess it polarized too many people to allow him to direct this, didn't make <laughs> it himself. Um, I guess he's an old man as well. So maybe that came into play. But yeah, I'm trying to think of some standout like set pieces or sequences in this movie. And it's a lot I of mean, just the, like, the this happened and this happened. The is, is very, uh, it's effective. I mean, it's not like a masterful bit of staging or anything, but like the dark comedy of, Ray Liotta or, or Dickie Moltisanti driving you know, through the riot, straight through the heart of the riot, his dead father, who he's murdered, slumped over the passenger seat of his car. And they're stopped by cops who are rounding up black people left and right for the minor, you know, minor infractions for, for you know, rioting. Um, <laughs> and in the scene that obviously resonates with recent events in this country, um, and the cop stops Dickie Moltisanti and he just like takes one look at him and flags him forward, even though he has a literal corpse in the passenger seat <laughs> of his car, is funny in the way that The Sopranos was always yeah. funny in that they're just laughing at how deeply corrupt and fucked up this country is. And uh, that is the kind of moment that is a hallmark of David Chase's writing and stands out to me. I mean, it does sort of galvanize that entire set piece, which is probably not so memorable in well, visual terms. There is a, the big shootout which sort of anti-climaxes, I guess, in the movie. But like that... There's some grisly violence in this movie. I mean, the teeth like... Oh, yeah, roto roto tooth. Didn't care for that. Yikes. I mean, it was was pretty intense. But uh, yeah, I don't know. 
it's it's uneven, but not in a way that I can hold against it because I think what it does accomplish is pretty great. But yeah, I also, I just like wanted the show, I wanted the, more little moments. I like the race when, riots uh, are the so trade federation another... of blockaded Naboo. It's just like it's something that happens. So <laughs> I want another Sopranos. I guess yeah, you wanted I another want season another... of television. Yeah, I, I was particularly struck by right after Dickie kills his dad. Um, he's like trying to convince Tony, to, younger Tony, to go away. And he's like pretending that he's uh, fixing a car or something because he's parked too close and he can't close the garage. And his wife's screaming at him about making pork chops and applesauce. <laughs> and he's just like standing out there being like, I don't know what sauce, what sauce you want out of the sauce. And I'm just like, this is like screaming Italian. But Sometimes you just does, want the room for that. It does feel like a missed opportunity in a way, just because um, the this could have been a really great example to show why the feature length film format can be uniquely effective um, in contrast to a longer uh, trajectory of a television series and they could have told a story that was designed to work in this format rather than tell something that just felt like a compressed season of television and made you which is the worst thing that I mean, really you know one of the, the cardinal sins of going to a movie these days is if it makes you feel like it would have been better as a tv show because it's sort of an affront to the format itself and I think that like yeah I mean there, there is a way to tell the story a Dickie Moltisanti story that felt taut and, and tense and and really yeah. just took advantage of a sort of three-act structure over the course of two hours. And uh, this movie, you know, goes for the road less traveled, and it's a weird one. I, I, I mean, I prefer, know. I'll say this, I prefer this to El Camino, the Breaking Bad movie that, that oh. is kind of what you're describing, which is like, let's take a really specific moment and just follow Jesse in like 90 minutes, almost real time or something. I'm trying to remember exactly. I, I happily, happy to say I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, totally two different, choices and in, in how to follow characters and uh, uh, yeah this is the more interesting one certainly i think there's a lot of potential to this movie if it's not entirely successful many sites of newark it's also in theaters but it's also on hbo max and it's do it is, it is yeah, a tv the, show that was on television the first time is a tv shows on television the first time just uh, do the one that's going to get you to watch it and i live in newark almost Eddie, <laughs> that's the podcast. <laughs> what do we do now, pussy? I wish pussy? I knew if that was a good impression of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. On my planet, we don't have fucking podcasts. Uh, that does it for this week's show. Next week, we're talking about Bond, right? Yeah, I think so. Katie and Dave are buying movie tickets because we're going, going to... Going to Bond. Movies are back. Now, this one's a little bit longer than Venom. It's like <laughs> oh, my three, God. It's like it's two, three it's Venom, three. Three, two Venoms. <laughs> oh, and God. we will definitely be doing a spoiler segment next week. Oh, my God. Venom we, 2 we also has two Venoms. This is the grand finale. Still 90 minutes. All right. Uh, Bond. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, where thankfully... Galaxy Brains co-host Joe Ray, thanks to a Facebook outage, is finally back on Twitter tweeting about Galaxy Brains, the podcast <laughs> that I help produce. That's hosted by Jonah Ray and Dave Schilling, and uh, they just did an episode about Seinfeld. That was very, very funny. Um, so go check that out, too. And if you need even more podcast content, as David has suggested, we have a whole archive out there 
waiting to to listen to and if you uh, are not like me because i don't have time for this but if you're sitting at a computer all day and you need to uh, go find fighting in the worm.com and listen to episodes you can do it right in your browser you don't need a podcast app look at you go uh, I am David Ehrlich. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. You can find me on IndieWire writing about whatever it is that I'm writing about this week. Uh, you can find all of us on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Go on Fighting in the War Room on iTunes. Leave us a review. We'll read it live on the show. Uh, it's great. It's what it's what the world needs. And I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on DA7E on Twitter. I was going to plug the website patches. I was going to let you just galaxy brain it out. Because guess what? I watched all of Lost. And I did over seven continuous days worth of podcasting about it over at the Storm of Lost Rewatch podcast. That's done now. So go to fightinginthewarroom.com and uh, check out all that we've done, which I don't want to add up the hours, but it, because it's more. It's more at fightinginthewarroom.com. Uh, it's more. I'm Katie Rich. If you want to hear me talking even more about American Crime Story Impeachment, you can uh, subscribe to Skull Watch, Still Watching. Or you can also hear me on Little Gold Men at Vanity Fair, uh, where this week we're talking about Mass, I suppose. A very sad movie that maybe we'll talk about on here someday, too. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can record audio of yourself give, doing the Venom impression. Oh, or you can answer this week's Lightning Round question. Katie, is... <laughs> yes? Is... Is Mass, just to terribly interrupt you in the easy landing of this episode, uh, is is Mass the gritty origin story prequel to Midnight Mass? Uh, I mean, I guess you'll have to tune in next week and find Far out. from it. Perhaps we'll get into it. Mm. We'll see. Uh, uh, oh, God. Or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of No Time to Die, wrapping up the Daniel Craig era, what is your favorite James Bond film opening sequence? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Every time I look around, every time I look around, every time I look around, it's in my face. I'm done.